What I will be presenting to you is part of a much longer piece. In the longer piece, in the first part, I go over forgotten landscapes of Europe. I saw a poster there, uh, post-war history and post-war memory, uh, if I remember the title correctly. And that is precisely what I do in, or at least set out to do in that first part of my argument, to explode the sort of presentism that all people have when they think of the place where they live. They tend to take borders, locations, um, uh, uh, lines that connect them to places for granted. Um, even in Europe, given which, which, which is a remarkable thing given the tragic and dramatic history of Europe of massive movements of people across national borders, national borders changing, changing locations on the map of Europe. So I, I try to, to at least sensitize the reader of that piece to an archaeology of forgotten Europe's. Um, and then in the second part, which I will present to you, I address the question of how in that shifting map of Europe, where people all the time redefine, reconsider who they are, where they live, where they come from, who collectively they, they, they are in terms of cultural identities and national or subnational regional identities, I address the question of how an American radiance has played a role in that overall complexity of cues and, and um, uh, cues for, for people to form their sense of, of identity. America has consistently throughout the 20th century played a role and occasionally in jest it is being said that the only culture that Europeans share across national borders is American culture. That is where they can, can meaningfully exchange views of, have you seen that movie? Do you remember listening to that tune 20 years ago? And yes, it works. It brings people back together on the cue of the presence of an American culture. Now, in, in what I will do here, it is not so much music or film, but it is uh, iconography, American iconography, as it has been displayed in Europe's public space. And my central question is then, could the fact that American iconic images, and they could have been commercial images, um, can it be that they have played a role in giving us Europeans a sense of a cultural presence transcending national borders? In other words, could that American presence in Europe have helped Europeans think of themselves, of the European space in those larger terms, sort of responding to an image in their minds of America as constituting this large continental space where culture travels and is shared by millions, hundreds of millions, where one language is shared, where people can actually communicate wherever they move restlessly as Americans do. Could that have been a historic model for Europeans to reconsider their sense of Europe and their sense of the European space. And this is how that part of the larger argument starts. 
I must have been 12 or 13 in the early 50s, and this is giving away a secret. <laughs> I must have been 12 or 13 in the early 50s when in my hometown of Harlem in the Netherlands, this is Harlem spelled with two A's, not one, as you with your great sense of efficiency have chosen to do. <laughs> in my hometown of Harlem in the Netherlands, I stood enthralled by a huge picture along the entire rear wall of a garage. As I remember it now, it was my first trance-like transportation into a world that was unlike anything I had known so far. I stood outside on the sidewalk, looking in. Not surprisingly, given the fact that this garage sold American cars, the picture on the wall was of a 1950s American car shown in its full iconographic force as a carrier of dreams rather than as a mere means of transportation. Cars in general, let alone their gigantic American versions, were a distant dream to, to most Dutch people at the time. Yet what held my gaze was not so much the car as the image of a boy younger than I was at the time who came rushing from behind the car his motion stopped, his contagious joy continuing. He wore sneakers, blue jeans rolled up at the ankles, a t-shirt. His hairdo was different than that of any of my friends, and so was his facial expression. Come to think of it, there must have been a ball. The boy's rush must have been like the exhilarating dash across a football field or a basketball court, surging ahead of others. The very body language, although frozen into a still picture, seemed to speak of a boisterous freedom. Everything about the boy radiated signals from a distant but enticing world. This may have been my first confrontation with a widescreen display of the good life in America, of its energy, its exhilaration, its typical pursuits and satisfactions. As I, as I now think back of the moment, I am aware that my distant exposure to America's dreamscape was not unlike an astronomer's, catching light emitted eons ago by distant stars. Metaphorically speaking, America was eons away from Europe at the time, feverishly engaged as it was in the construction of the consumer's republic, as Liz Cohen in a recent book has called it, in feverishly engaged as Americans were in the construction of the consumer's republic and the pursuit of happiness that it incited. Beholding a picture of America in a garage in Harlem, I was exposed to a representation of life in America in a rare reflection of public imagery that in America had become ubiquitous. Nor was it all that recent there, even at the depth of the Great Depression, the National Association of Manufacturers, in typical boosterism, had pasted similar images across the nation, advertising the American way, and you may have seen photographs of it, which are among that huge body of work by the FSA photographers, um, now all at the uh, Library of Congress, and available uh, on, on the web. You can all download them, thousands of them, a massive collection, beautiful. But even at the depth of the Great Depression, the National Association of Manufacturers, in typical boosterism, had pasted similar images across the nation, 
advertising the American way in displays of happy families riding in their cars. Much of the jarring dissonance between these public displays and the miseries of collective life in 1930s America still applied to Europe in the early 1950s. There were still, these, those were still lean years. In Harlem, I stood beholding an image that had no visual reference in real life anywhere in Europe at the time. Yet the image may have been equally seductive for Europeans as for Americans. Consumerism may have been a distant dream in post-war Europe, yet it was eagerly anticipated as Europeans were exposed to its American version through advertising, photojournalism, Life magazine, for instance, and Hollywood films. Now, as images of America's culture of consumption began to fill Europe's public space, they exposed Europeans to views of the good life that Americans themselves were exposed to. To that extent, they may have Americanized European dreams and longings. But isn't there also a way we might argue that Europe's exposure to American imagery may have worked to Europeanize Europe at the same time? There are several ways of going about answering this question. It has been said in jest, and I already mentioned this, it has been said in jest that the only culture that Europeans had in common in the late 20th century was American culture. Their exposure to forms of American mass culture transcended national borders in ways that no national varieties were ever able to rival. True, there was the occasional Italian or German hit song running up the charts in other European countries. There were still audiences across Europe for films made in one or another European country. There were the 1960s, when England contributed to international youth culture in areas such as music and fashion, often giving its own characteristic twist to American mass culture that had reached England in the years before. But the one continuing line throughout the late, late, latter half of the 20th century was of an exposure of European publics to American mass culture. The points of exposure were not necessarily only in public space. Much of the consumption of American mass culture took place in private settings when people watched television in their living rooms or Hollywood movies in the quasi-private space of the darkened movie theater. American popular music reached them via the radio or on records and once again made for a formation of audiences assembling in private places such as homes or dance clubs. This private or peer group consumption of American mass culture does not mean that larger virtual audiences did not emerge across Europe. Far from it. Shared repertoires, shared tastes, and shared cultural memories had formed that would make for quick and easy cultural exchange across national borders among Europe's younger generations. They could more readily compare notes on shared cultural preferences using American examples than varieties of mass culture produced in national settings. 
Yet this is not what I intend to explore here. There is an area properly called public space outside private homes, outside gathering places for cultural consumption that had served across Europe as a site of exposure to American mass culture. Much as it is true that forms of American mass culture transmitted via the entertainment industry travel under commercial auspices, they are always economic commodities in addition to being cultural goods to be sold before they are consumed, public space is, this, is the area where American mass culture most openly advertised itself, creating the demand, if not the desire, for its consumption. In public space, including the press, we find the film posters advertising the latest Hollywood movies or the dreamlike representations of an America where people smoke certain cigarettes, buy certain cars, cosmetics, clothes. They are literally advertisements creating economic demand while at the same time conveying imaginary Americas. They thus contributed to a European repertoire of an invented America, an imagined America, as a realm for reverie filled with iconic heroes setting standards of physical beauty, of taste, of proper behavior. If Europe to a certain extent became other directed, to use a term fashionable in the 1950s after David Reisman's famous book, The Lonely Crowd, if Europe to a certain extent became other directed, much like America itself under the impact of its own commercial culture, Europe's significant other had become America as commercially constructed through advertising. <coughs> If we may conceive of this redirection of Europe's gaze toward America as a sign of Europe's Americanization, it means an appropriation of American standards and tastes in addition to whatever cultural habits were already in place to direct people's individuals, individual quest for identity. Americanization is my point. Americanization is never the simple zero-sum game where people trade in their European clothes for every pair of blue jeans they acquire. And I found myself strangely caught in terms of the dress code for this event. I normally don't wear ties, and I thought, you never know with these Americans. You can, mis <laughs> you can misread them. You show up informally dressed when all the American friends at the same gathering have ties and the other way around. I find myself as one of the few <laughs> wearing a tie and a jacket. Well, anyway, <laughs> so there is a touch of Europe and I thought, why not add it to my presence and presentation <laughs> to direct your reading of what I'm saying. Um, It is more a matter of cultural syncretism, of an interweaving of bits of American culture into European cultural habits, where every borrowing of American cultural ingredients creatively changes their meaning and context, 
Certainly, Europe's cultural landscape has changed, but never in ways that would lead visiting Americans to mistake Europe for a simple replica of their own culture. My larger point, though, is to pursue a paradox. Henry James, at one point, astutely perceived, it is for Americans rather than Europeans to conceive of Europe as a whole and to transcend Europe's patterns of cultural particularism. He meant to conceive of it as one cultural canvas of a scale commensurate with that of America as one large continental culture. His aphoristic insight certainly highlights a recurring rationale in the way that Americans have approached Europe. Whether they are businessmen seeing Europe as one large market for their products or post-World War II politicians pursuing a vision of European cooperation transcending Europe's divisive nationalisms. If we may rephrase James's remark as referring to an American inclination to project their mental scale of thought onto the map of Europe, that inclination in its own right may have had a cultural impact in Europe and on Europe as an eye-opening revision of their mental compass, inspiring a literal revision. Whatever the precise message, the fact that American advertising appeared across European countries exposed traveling Europeans to commercial communication proceeding across national borders, addressing Europeans wherever they lived. More specifically, though, there is a genre of advertising that precisely confronts Europeans with the fantasy image of America as one open space. If all American advertising conjures up fantasy versions of life in America, the particular fantasy of America as unbounded space, free of the confining boundaries set by European cultures to dreams of individual freedom, may well have activated the dream of a Europe as wide and open as America. The particular genre of advertising I'm thinking of finds its perfect illustration in the myth of Marlboro Country and the Marlboro Man. <laughs> both vanished from the American scene, much to my dismay. <laughs> I never smoked the damn cigarettes, but I liked the advertisement. The idea, of <laughs> the idea of tying the image of this particular brand of cigarettes to the mythical lure of the American West goes back to the early 60s and inspired an advertising iconography that has kept its appeal unto recently, I must say. They're vanishing in Europe as well. But for 30 years, well over 30 years, close to 40 years, they had this impact. And they, they kept their appeal. Over time, the photographic representation of the imaginary space of Marlborough country expanded in size, filling Europe's public space with widescreen images of Western landscapes lit by a setting sun, with rock formations glowing in deep red color, with horses descending to their watering hole, and rugged-faced cowboys, many of whom 
have died of lung cancer. <laughs> and rugged-faced cowboys lighting up after the day's work had been done. This was a space for fantasy to roam, offering the transient escape into dreams of unbounded freedom, of being one's own free agent. It was hard not to see these images. They were often obtrusively placed, hanging over the crowds in railway stations or adding gorgeous color to some of Europe's gray public, gray public squares. I remember one prominently placed to the left of the steps leading up to Budapest's great gray museum of art. And it seemed as if the show opened right there. One couldn't miss it. The formula was widely imitated. Other cigarette brands came up with their own variations on the theme, using different iconography, showing young couples in leisure time pursuits, or showing a jet-set lifestyle that one might vicariously share for the time it took to smoke a cigarette. In post-Cold War Poland, a roadside poster showed a young couple radiating joy in the manner of these advertisements, radiating joy, its text inviting the audience to have a taste of freedom. The advertisement was for an American cigarette, but European cigarette makers as well adopted the approach, as in the French Gauloise campaign using Parisian settings. The attractive young males in the photographs, in this case, have a casual informality about them, with jackets flung over their shoulders, or their feet up on the table of a roadside terrace, that are vaguely resonant of American styles of public behavior. The overall impression is summarily captured in the advertisement's affirmative statement, la liberté, toujours, liberty, always. A direct quotation from this genre, advertising genre that was coined and styled in America. Peter Stuyvesant cigarettes in the Netherlands used a more postmodern collage technique for conveying a similar message. They reduced the explicit markers of European dreams of America as open space, so central to the Marlboro approach, to mere echoes to trigger the same repertoires, repertoire of fantasies. Again, they showed young couples in the gathering places of an international leisure class, captioned in each case by the names of a hotel in Miami Beach, San Francisco, or other such places of rendezvous. The central slogan, giving meaning to the jumble of text and visuals, reads, there are no borders. The advertising campaign was set up by a Dutch advertising agency as further testimony to the adoption by Europeans of American dreams and messages of unbounded space. The use of English in a campaign addressing a Dutch audience is increasingly common and intended to give an international flavor to the message. Indeed, there are no borders. In fact, the commodified lure of open space has by now become so familiar that advertisers have begun to ironize their message with an implied wink to an audience of initiates. One example of such an ironic twist is a commercial for an Italian travel agency, and here I have to wield back my 
my barrow, wheeling my barrow. Uh, let's see. There was no slide projector to be found, so I'm using the overhead projector to show you the slide. Uh, turn the lights off. No, no, no. But this is this is as good. Yeah, I'm going to do it over here. So let me, since it's not really very clear, this is a slide that should have been projected onto the screen, and yet maybe it will improve. It will improve just a little. Yeah, but that wouldn't make a difference. I tried it out before. This is as, as good as it gets. Uh, and let me describe it. It's in the text. And this is then about the ironic recycling by Europeans of American genres. One example of such an ironic twist is a commercial for an Italian travel agency calling itself Marlboro Country Travels. That's in the lower right-hand corner. Uh, so travels, trips, are offered to a country of the imagination that doesn't really exist. That's part of the irony here. Marlboro Country Travels. Playing on the escapism of much modern tourism, where you have to lose yourself in the hope of finding yourself, it arranges travel to the United States while casting the destination in the image of Marlboro Country's fictional space. A large color photograph, actually a montage, shows a 1950s gas pump to the left, a nostalgic reminder of the romanticism of Route 66, and we all remember sort of lines from songs like Get Your Kicks on Route 66 and Jack Kerouac's book On the Road or the exhilaration of road movies. So it's all meant to evoke, nostalgically evoke that period when American culture already potently traveled to Europe. As a backdrop, the photograph offers a view of the American West with a little cloud of dust that you can hardly see there in the, in, in the middle, in sort of in the distance, with a little cloud of dust at its center, trailing a diminutive <coughs> SUV rolling off into the distance. The central slogan tells us, if you can read it, and if you can't, I'll read it for you, fa il vuoto, Italian for, it means two things, it's a pun. Normally in Italy, when you fill up your car, you say, fai il pieno, fill her up. Here it says, fai il vuoto, drive her empty. It also translates as, go for the void, go for empty space, and give it your own sense and meaning. It plays on the standard request at gas stations to fill her up. It beautifully captures the desire of modern travelers to empty themselves of their concerns and preoccupations, to leave all their worries behind and take off into empty space. A similar punning approach to advertising can be found all over Europe's public space nowadays. Freedom still is the central idea in these games, although it has given many ironic twists. There was a poster for Levi's 508 jeans pasted all over the Netherlands in the mid-1990s. The photograph showed a male torso 
naked from the neck down to the pair of blue jeans. The iconography has a high degree of intertextuality, at least for an audience steeped in American mass culture. It is reminiscent of Bruce Springsteen's cover for the album Born in the USA, or of Andy Warhol's cover design for the Rolling Stones album Sticky Fingers. And some of you may remember this. It had a real zipper. <laughs> Again, the poster uses a collage technique, offering a jumble of visual and textual ingredients. Surprisingly, given that this was an advertisement designed by a Dutch agency, in the lower left-hand corner, you could see a variation on Roosevelt's famous Four Freedoms. The first two sounded pretty Rooseveltian, evoking the freedom of speech and expression, followed by the freedom of choice, which was not among Roosevelt's foursome, and sitting ambivalently astride the freedom of choice of people seen either as political citizens or as individual consumers in the marketplace. In fourth place, among those four freedoms quoted and, and played upon, following the words Levi's 508 in bold face, is the freedom of movement. Again, there is the political ring, expressive of a political longing that many, for instance, in Eastern Europe may have felt during the years of the Cold War. Yet the pun is intended, yet a pun is intended. The freedom of movement in the context of that poster was meant to refer to a, the greater movement offered by the baggier cut of the 508, a point visually illustrated by the unmistakable bulge of a male member in full erection, touched casually at the tip by the right hand of its master. The list of further examples is endless. Advertising across Europe's public space has assumed common forms of address, common routines, and common themes, with many variations. Originating in America, it has now been appropriated by European advertising agencies and may be put in the service of American as well as European products. That in itself is a sign of a transnational integration of Europe's public space. But as I suggested before, the point of many of the stories advertisements tell refers precisely to space, to openness, to a dreamscape transcending Europe's checkered map. An international commercial culture has laid itself across public space in Europe using an international language, often literally in snippets of English, and instilling, instilling cravings and desires now shared internationally. Has all this gone has all this gone on without voices of protest and resistance rising in this same public space? In fact, there are many instances of such contestation, turning Europe's public space into yet another showcase of liminal Europe's where the very idea of a new European space is, is, is reaching limits, is being discussed and expanded. <clears throat> right at the heart of Europe, in its public space, we can see battle lines running as so many indications of groups pitting themselves 
against forces of globalization and its appropriation. If appropriation, however playfully and creatively done, is a form of acceptance, we can see many forms of rejection at the same time. On a highway outside Warsaw, I saw a poster for ladies' lingerie using the familiar techniques of drawing the spectator's gaze. It used the female body, shown here from the back, and as I re remember it, a beautiful, a gorgeous back, shown from the back in reference, if not deference, to international ideals of female beauty. If such pictures are apt to draw the male gaze, they do so indirectly, through the male gaze as internalized by women. This is what they this is what they would like to look like in the eyes of men. The poster further used the appeal of English, of the English language. The brand of lingerie was called Italian fashion, throwing in the appeal of Italian fashion design for good measure. But evidently such public display of the female body was not to everyone's taste in Poland at the time someone had gotten, out of, had gotten out his or her spray can to write the Polish word dosz, meaning enough, or stop it, or basta in Italian, across the poster. If a he, he may have been a devout Catholic protesting against the desecration of public space. If a she, she may have been a feminist, objecting to the commodification of the female body. In another instance, in the northern Italian city of Turin, my gaze was drawn to the base of an equestrian statue. On all four sides, another spray can artist had left these public messages. McDonald bastardi. Need I translate? <laughs> Boycotta McDonald. And more such. If the square had been turned into a liminal Europe discussing the borderline of where Europe ends and America begins, if, if the square had been turned into a liminal Europe of cultural acceptance and cultural rejection, with Europeans putting up resistance at what they saw as foreign encroachments, it happened in a rather ironic, if not self-defeating way. If the point of the protest was to rise in defense of the European cultural heritage, it did not shrink from turning one emblem of that heritage, an equestrian statue, into a mere blackboard for messages of protest, desecrating what it meant to elevate. In Europe's lasting encounter with American mass culture, many have been the voices expressing concern about its negative impact. Cultural guardians in Europe saw European standards of taste and cultural appreciation eroded by an American way with culture that aimed at a mass market, elevating the lowest common denominator of mass preference to the main vector of cultural production. This history, and it, it is a long history that you can trace back actually into the 19th rather than the 20th century. Um, this history of cultural anti-Americanism in Europe has a long pedigree. 
In its earlier manifestations, the critique of American mass culture was highly explicit and had to be. Many ominous trends of an evolving mass culture in Europe had to be shown to have originated in America, reaching Europe under clear American agency. An intellectual repertoire of Americanism and Americanization evolved in a continuing attempt at cultural resistance against the lures of a culture of consumption. Never mind that such cultural forms might have come to Europe autonomously, even in the absence of an American model. America, as it happened, America served to give a name and a face to forces of cultural change that would otherwise have been anonymous and seemingly beyond control. Today, this European repertoire is alive and kicking. Yet, ironically, as a repertoire that has become common currency to the point of being an intellectual stereotype rather than an informed opinion, America nowadays is often a subtext, unspoken in European forms of cultural resistance. A recent example may serve to illustrate this. Another slide that you will hardly be able to see. A recent example may serve to illustrate this. A political poster for the Socialist Party in Salzburg in the run-up to municipal elections in the city shows us the determined face and the clenched fist of the party's candidate. <laughs> sort of prescribed posture for a determined. This picture radiates leadership the way that your president does it so well, <laughs> at least to some audiences. <laughs> um, he asked the voting public whether the younger generation would not be losers. Uh, that's in the top. That little black uh, bar there. Salzburg. Autumn 97, youth as losers, question mark? So that is the question that gets him to produce more text. And then he calls on Salzburgers to kämpfen Salzburg, kämpfen, fight Salzburg, fight. Now you might well ask what for? And he gives the answer, also in German, as you may expect when it's a political campaign, why use English and, and lose much of your audience, damit unsere Jugend die Zukunft nicht satt hat, which could translate as, in order to avoid that young people would get fed up with the future. That's the literal translation. It keeps the metaphor to get fed up with. Now, the getting fed up with the future is visually illustrated, and that makes this a sort of visual pun, is visually illustrated in the center of the image by a hamburger a fly-by hamburger. This is truly fast food. You can hardly see it. Its shape is blurred. And this is a vision of the future that he promises to resist. An image of the future cast in terms of Europe becoming Americanized. 
stooping to the facile temptations of American mass culture, offering consumption rather than consummation, the way that European high culture promises to do. So it has, it has that entire repertoire of a European cultural anti-Americanism condensed into one visual pun, and Europeans are very likely to get the pun. There is no reference to America other than in its iconic picture of a hamburger. And that is enough to trigger the larger repertoire of cultural anti-Americanism. We may choose to see this poster as only a recent version of cultural guardianship that has always looked at the younger generation as a stalking horse, if not a Trojan horse, for American culture. That was the, 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 the recurring situation where it was younger generations that adopted American culture, uh, recognized its freedom and its, its potential use to make a cultural counterpoint to what their parents tried to impose on them in terms of good taste and what have you. Um, so it was Beatles or, or uh, uh, American groups, Jefferson Airplane, rather than Mozart and Beethoven, and they could al almost use the middle finger in the face of their parents. So that is the typical construction. It was the parental generation who sat in a role of cultural guardianship. It was mostly younger generations who then introduced and loved and changed and appropriated American mass culture. So you could see that older construction of the battle of these culture wars in a number of European countries represented here. It's the older politician who promises to defend the cultural borders of Austria, if not of Salzburg. Uh, in fact, historically, it has always been younger generations who, in rebellion against parental authority and cultural imposition, opted for the liberating potential of American mass culture. Yet, interesting changes may have occurred in this pattern, recent changes. Today, young people as well, in their concern about forces of globalization, may target America as the central agency behind such global trends. They may smash the windows of a nearby McDonald's, and there is always a McDonald's nearby in contemporary <laughs> Europe. They may deface equestrian statues in Turin, or may choose more creative and more subtle forms of protest. Yet again, America tends to be a mere subtext in their resistance against global cultural icons. One more example may serve to illustrate this. I have a music video with me, um, and I suggest we first watch it and then talk about it.
quickest way to stop it. <laughs> so what is this? Clearly a celebration. But of what? One more example may serve to illustrate this. I have a music video which I just showed a few years old of did you recognize or have a hunch about the language? Yes. You're fluent in Basque, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is Basque. It's not a guess. This is right. Uh, an informed guess, probably. Um, and indeed, this is a Basque group that you saw performing. <coughs> The video, in its own right, is an act of cultural emancipation. The lyrics are in the Basque language, and the station broadcasting the video had all Basque programming, 24-7, so to speak. I'm not sure about the seven. Um, this may suggest, summarized thus, this may suggest localism if not cultural provincialism. Nothing, I think you will agree, would be farther from the truth. What we have here is a perfect example of globalization, and this is where the two phrases in the subtitle of my talk, American culture in the world, global and local, come together, globalization. This would be a perfect example of that process taking place. The music used is ska, not from the Basque country, but from the Caribbean, mediated in its transmission to the Basque country by the British rather than the American music industry, but after all we are talking about global culture now, and England plays an important role there. The music used is ska, an ingredient of world music, hailing from the Caribbean and popularized through the British music industry. The format of the music video itself is part of a global musical entertainment, formed and styled not in the Basque country for television. They borrow it. It's being used by international stations like MTV. Again, you can trace its origins back to the innovations, the, the endless innovation of American mass culture. So they use that format of the music video for a message that is local. What the video shows is a confusing blend of the traditional and the modern. The opening shot, as you may remember, is of a man using a scythe to cut grass, an Arcadian image. The camera moves up and shows a modern international style office block. A mobile phone rings and the grass cutter answers the call. More images show modern life. We see an old man talking into a microphone strapped to his head as if he were talking to himself. We see a group of young men on a flatbed, flatbed lorry moving through traffic. They're working out in tandem on treadmill machines, yet in complete isolation. 
like a transported glimpse of an American gym. Then the protagonists of the video appear with a rickety van getting ready to sell the local variety of Basque fast food, a sausage on a roll. Nothing more dramatic than that. The very smell breaks the isolation of people caught in the alienating life of modernity. They all flock to the sausage stand to get a taste of true bustness. They come to life spurred by an alleged authenticity of traditional Basque life. The lyrics repeat the refrain, down with Big Mac, long live Big Benat is the name of that sausage. <laughs> the claim made in this video is on behalf of the authenticity of regional cultures struggling to survive in a world threatened by the homogenizing forces of globalization. Yet the medium of communication testifies to the impact of precisely those forces as much as it protests against them. There is much irony in all this. But most important is the fact that what is shown as modernity truly revives a long repertoire of European cultural anti-Americanism. America is modernity, and the long history of European resistance to America is truly a story of resisting the onslaught of modernity as an alienating force on Europe's checkered map of regional and or national cultures. To watch this ambiguous proclamation to watch this ambiguous proclamation of a regional oh before I burn my own slime. It smells good. Could we have a light please? Thanks. To watch this ambiguous proclamation of regional culture superiority and authenticity is to be reminded again of the irony of life in today's many liminal Europes, literally at the limes, the edge of Europe's cultural sway. As one visit to Bilbao, the industrial city in the Basque country, will make clear, the Basqueness of the place is, if anything, an imposed and unduly homogenized reading. Under the impact of industrialization, Bilbao, like so many other industrial centers, has drawn its workforce from a large hinterland, forgetful of the integrity of local culture. If capitalism, as Joseph Schumpeter, or before him Karl Marx, reminded us, is a force of creative destruction, Bilbao testifies to the truth of this statement. People from all over Spain have migrated there and lived there for several generations, giving the place a multicultural tone and eroding Basqueness from within its own territory. Following years of decline, the city has now revived. In addition to restoring its heritage of a residential and industrial architecture redolent of its past prowess, it also sought to reconnect itself to the contemporary modernity of cutting-edge architecture. By the river that runs through the city now stands one of Europe's great modern structures, a museum of art 
designed by the American architect Frank Gehry and financed by Guggenheim money. With its wavy lines, have you seen photographs of the building? It's a magnificent building and the way it sits there. It's With its wavy lines, it evokes a local seafaring history and seems to mirror the river that connected Bilbao to the wider world. It is a modern rendition of a local history that lives on as collective memory. It seems to have sprouted from that store of memories, much as the creative genius who shaped it lives across the ocean's waters that wash the Basque coast at their eastern reach. If Bilbao seeks to reconnect itself to a cosmopolitanism it once reflected, its strivings stand at right angles to the efforts at freezing Basqueness in time. Whatever the peculiarities of this tension, its inherent logic makes Bilbao a microcosm of Europe's many internal contradictions. And I then, in the last part of that tripartite paper, in the last part, I move on opening the lens wider from Bilbao, having explored its curious double tension one illustrated as localization, uh, resisting forces of globalization on the basis of a particular reading of local culture, which is a narrow reading, which excludes many people who live there, who are not Basques by birth, but who live there, have lived there for generations. That's one reading of what happens. The other reading is looking at the, the Geary Museum, another attempt at connecting local memories, local stores of who we were, what we did, past glories, to new trends that are, if anything, cosmopolitan and global, to invite an American architect to use uh, Guggenheim money to display international art there, is another attempt at connecting the local to the global. Two versions of the same... Um, impulse and that then I explore for the larger scale of Europe with a discussion in a discussion of what cosmopolitanism could mean given all these tensions and struggles taking place in Europe which seeks becoming a larger European Union on May 1st this will happen I'm among those who can't wait to see this happen there are others who watch this in agony and anticipation, seeing this mostly in terms of a threat to what is in place, a threat to local cultures, a threat to national cultures, a threat to national languages. There are many people who have a sense of foreboding about what's coming. I welcome it, and I hope there is a majority in Europe welcoming it when we all have to vote on the new European constitution um, in referendums. But it's a very risky episode in, in, in the, the life towards a larger Europe that we now live in Europe as Europeans but I, my aim then is to contribute to this consideration of what is taking place of what the future might be in cultural terms by reconsidering the concept of nationalism versus cosmopolitanism as it applies to Europe but that is for another day. <laughs> Thank you.